Welcome to episode 55 of the Page One podcast. I'm Tarek. I'm Marco. And thanks for joining us at the Page One podcast, where we like to speak to writers of all kinds uh, about their writing careers, uh, their writing process and how they got into the industry, and also try and get as many hints and tips on writing from them as possible. Um, There's a good back catalogue of episodes there, is episode 55, which I always am astonished at how many of these we've (laughs) recorded. Um, But uh, yeah, do check that out if, if you haven't before. And since it's in the run up to Christmas, as we record this, of course, next week's episode would be due to come out on Christmas Day. But and there's no chance Mark was working on Christmas Day. I was going to put you to work, Tarek, on Christmas Day. <laughs> the most horribly edited episode anyone has ever heard. Well, actually, we do have a Christmas treat, though, next week. And I thought we would mention this at the start of, of the podcast before we get into this week's guest. Um, we Earlier in the year, we recorded a couple of video podcasts, uh, which we're calling the Page One Sessions with two of our previous guests together um, having a more conversational chat about about stuff, um, although COVID features heavily in both of them, <laughs> um, warning. everything now. Yes. Um, so we already released one on YouTube, uh, and I thought we would release the audio of that on Christmas Day as a podcast so that if you haven't had a chance to watch it on YouTube, you can listen to it then. And that's a great chat that we had with Sarah Pimbra and Tim Lebin. Yep. Um, and then, as another bonus, There's there will more. there will be a new page one sessions released. I say new; we did record it in the summer, so <laughs> I feel bad to to the guests that it's only being released now. But you know, they're getting a big premiere. Um, it will be released on New Year's Eve on YouTube, but also as a special podcast episode as well. A chat that we had with Laura Lamb and Adrian J. Walker which again was great fun and really interesting to chat with both of them. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they're all, they're all kind of, a lot of them know each other, so it's a nice kind of relaxed chat. It's it's a lot of fun. There was even some drinking involved, I believe. There was, there was some drinking involved. Um, so yeah, but that's what to look out for in the next couple of weeks. And then we'll be back in the new year, the first week of, of January, with uh, a regular episode with another new guest. But... We're getting ahead of ourselves because we've got we a great episode this week as well. We have an excellent episode this week. This week we are chatting with Jenny Fields, who is an American novelist, and her latest novel uh, is Atomic Love, and it's a um, kind of romance spy thriller mm-hmm. set uh, during the uh, development of the atomic bomb in the Manhattan Project, and it's about a scientist who falls in love with another scientist and is then... Well, I don't want to give too much away, but there's some spying involved. Yes, indeed. And actually, it's as we chat with Jenny, it's inspired by real life because um, mm-hmm. her a member of her family actually worked on the Manhattan Project, she found out. So, um, you know, she's taken that on board. And we, we chat to her about how you write good historical fiction and the sort of research that's involved and stuff like that. So it's a really interesting episode. And she also had a career before writing, uh, which was in marketing, and she actually came up with some famous marketing campaigns. Certainly in the US, the the, <laughs> the one I'm thinking of 
was definitely in the US. <clears throat> I'm not sure if it ever was in the UK. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't recognise it until I YouTube did. Yeah, but it, it's it's a campaign for a fast food outlet. We won't spoil it. <laughs> um, but but we have put the little advert that that's uh, that that she wrote uh, in in the podcast, so you can enjoy that as well. And of course, the answer to the final question that we ask her. Well, we'll we'll see. We don't want to spoil. No spoiler alerts, but you can tell because Tarek's excited, probably what she said. (laughs) Um, So we'll get on with the podcast and we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat. On with the podcast. The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying, or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made Page One. Page One is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. I know you uh, had a background in uh, copywriting and marketing before you came into becoming a, a full-time author. W- have you always been attracted to writing, though? Was that something that you always had an interest in since you were young? Yes, I really wanted to be a writer from the time I was six years old. And I read a book, and I loved it so much, I just imitated it and wrote my own version of the book. <laughs> and... Um, I did go to um, to university. Uh, I went to graduate school at the Iowa Writers Workshop, which is in America, um, very hard to get into, and uh, a workshop that kind of launches a lot of writers. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my classmates, two of them, won Pulitzer prizes. Wow. So, wow, cool. um, so that was something that was important to my to my career, and I did that before I went into copywriter, but copywriting. But what I realized was I just um, knew I wasn't going to be able to make enough money to support a family or to Mm -hmm. have a a normal life being a writer. And writing was important enough to me that I didn't want that 
pressure on it. Mm -hmm. So I got a career. I, I, I started a career in advertising and I did that for 32 years. Wow. Which dates me. You're probably not even 32 years old. <laughs> <laughs> in a few years time I will be, but yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, when you were doing that work, obviously there is still a lot of writing in, in that work as well, but were you able to, um, continue your own you know fiction writing at the, at the same time I was um, so when I got out of graduate school and when I started being a copywriter I was first publishing short stories and I published a lot of short stories and then I published my first novel um, many years ago while I was still um, a creative director in advertising and I had a a, a young daughter who I was a single mom to after she was six years old. I was her only parent at that time there. So it was, um, yeah, it was very challenging. Uh, it, for, my first novel was written mostly during lunchtime. And then things got so busy, they no longer gave us lunch. We just worked oh, at God. our desk several times. <laughs> so then I had to work from, so I would put her to bed I would work out because you have to keep your body going too. And then I would write from 1130 till about 1.30 in the morning. And then oh. I'd get up at 6.10 to walk her to school and get her going. And Man. so it, I didn't get a lot of sleep for a lot of <laughs> I suppose it is, it's one of these things that I think you're so right that so many people start writing as they're working in something else and it's a side career until they can make it their own career. And it is, it's about finding that time and making the time and, and realizing if I want to do this, I'm going to need, need to carve out a few hours and just give up some sleep or whatever for it. And that's quite an important decision. It, you know, it's because you have to. I mm -hmm. think in the end, there's just some sense of emptiness if you don't do it and you miss that opportunity to find your best self because writing is very much about reaching your subconscious. And at least for me, it is. And um, if I don't do that, I just feel like there's something terribly missing in my life. And I, yeah. I'm sad about it. So, um, you know, and I do take breaks. I, I know there are writers who just write every single day, and I admire them. I'm not that kind of writer. Um, like, between books, I do take breaks. Um, but I'm starting a new book. And I realized, Oh, that's why I do it. I really <laughs> it feels so good to be writing again, you know. Yeah. And when when you were working in a job, uh, you know, from one point of view, it can seem that if you if your day job is to do with writing, then that's only going to help you with your your own writing. But this, you know, I speak as someone that that has a day job that is writing as well. Sometimes you can be, I find anyway, that you can be sort of dragged down by the by the the page writing if you like and it's it's difficult to get that spark going for your own writing did you find that as well I did on occasion but I have to say interestingly enough I really found I used different parts of my brain when I was doing my copywriting um I you know and it was a really overwhelming job there were times I was working 60 hours a week mm -hmm. but it, it's a, it's a, a more logical part of my brain. And I was really better at copywriting in the morning. And I'm really better at fiction writing in the late afternoon and evening. And, and that just proved to me it was a really, truly different part of my brain. Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, 
So while there were times the stress of the job really did suck away my energy or having a young child at the time <laughs> really did suck away my energy, um, I, I found that uh, the writing paid me back sometimes. It actually energized me in a way that the paid writing didn't. Now, I mean, I'll have to say that sometimes when we had a great campaign and it was really successful, that paid me back in itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but, but the writing that really mattered to me um, when it was going well, and God knows it doesn't always go well, as you're well aware, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> but when it was going well, it really did pay me back. But but you did work on some fairly big big ad campaigns. I was having a look at your, your website and... Um, there was the menu chant, and I don't think this is something that ever aired in the UK. But I had a, I found it on YouTube, and it's like, is it the one that's kind of like a rap? They sing a rap yeah. at, the, at the menu. Yeah. This is for McDonald's, yeah. Sorry, for McDonald's, yeah. Hi, may I take your order, please? Big Mac, McDLT, a quarter pounder with some cheese fillet, a fish, a hamburger, a cheeseburger, a Happy Meal, McNuggets, tasty golden French fries, regular and larger sizes, salad, chef, a garden, or a chicken salad, Oriental, big, big breakfast, egg McMuffin, hot hot cakes and sausages, maybe biscuits, bacon, egg and cheese and sausages, Danish hash, one, two, and four, dessert, hot apple pies and sundaes, three varieties of soft serve, corn, three kinds of shakes and chocolate, each of cookies, and to drink a Coca-Cola, diet, Coke, and orange, drink is right, and coffee, decaf, two, a low fat milk, also an orange juice, I love McDonald's, good time, great days, and I get this all at one place. Would you like that to go? I wrote that long before rap existed, but it was really, really popular. I wrote a lot of jingles for a while because I also write music. So that was another thing that um, I did. My job was really entertaining and I did get to travel all over the world. I mean, I, you know, I've been down under um, like seven times because of my job for a month at a time. Sometimes I've cool. done a lot of European shoots. I've shot in, um, you know, remote villages in um, Alaska where we were living in a cabin with our client for, a <laughs> you know, so, I mean, it, it was, it was good for me as a writer because I got to see and do things I wouldn't necessarily see and do and couldn't afford to see and do. But, um, but when it comes to what really makes me happy, it's my own writing. So you, you, you had the first book um, when you were still in that, working in that area. How did that come about? Did you, you know, did you have to spend time finding an agent or did that come quite easily? How, how did that come about? Well, you know, it's funny. I found an agent right after graduate school and, um, and then I, the first novel that I wrote never got published. And so the novel that did get published, Lily Beach, was my, uh, you know, my first published novel was years later. And um, and I, I reached out to get an agent and I actually got one fairly easily. I mean, having been at the Hour Writers Workshop was a bit of a key to a door mm -hmm. for me. Mm -hmm. And um, that really helped in the fact that I'd published so, so many short stories you know, you want to have some kind of um, resume at the time you're looking for an agent to make them pay attention. Mm -hmm. And those things helped. So I had an agent um, for the, you know, for the second book. And I, I was with her for 27 years, but I switched agents um, two years ago. And I have to say, it's been just amazing. It's, it was a really good thing that I did that. That's a hard. We've tried a few folk who've done a similar switch, although not after that long with an agent. But but I think it was always it must be a really difficult 
thing to know when to leave someone behind, especially if you've been with them for, for that long as well. And, 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 and what was it that made you think it's time for a bit of a change here? Well, you know, um, one of my best friends is Ann Patchett. Do you know Ann mm-hmm. Patchett? Yeah. And she lives down the street from me. We walk oh. our dogs together every single night. <laughs> so, you know, we, we talk about, you know, how's it going? And the weird thing about Ann is she's 10 years younger than I am. But we both went to the Iowa Writers Workshop. We both went to the Provincetown Fine Arts Work Center, which is a place where they let you write for a year by the ocean. Um, we both had the same agent for 20 something years. And she, I was getting very frustrated with the agent and she got frustrated enough with the agent because the agent stopped being able to function properly. She wasn't reading, she wasn't getting things out. And Anne left her first. And then she just kept, you know, elbowing me in the rib. <laughs> You've got to find a better agent. You can do it. And so, you know, she was annoying me enough that I, I said, <laughs> and I did, I did find an agent who's just been incredible. And this book has been a very different experience for me. And I mean, I loved my agent for many years. It's really like a divorce when you leave an agent mm, after yeah. that long. And what was it that that made you think, right, I'm now going to do this full time and, you know, I'm going to leave the um, advertising behind? Right. So when my when I sold my last book, which was The Age of Desire, which was my fourth novel, um, I got a, a, a nice enough nut that I felt, you know, I I had put a lot of money aside. I owned a brownstone in New York, which I thought I could sell. And let me explain what happened. So my husband and I met in college and had a romance. And then we didn't see each other for 25 years. And we got back together in 1999. And we commuted between New York and Nashville for 10 years. And and during that time, six of those years, we were actually married and not living together. We were just commuting back and forth. And so when I sold The Age of Desire, I thought, you know what, I I can now afford to like sell my brownstone in New York and move to Nashville. And I didn't know if I'd like it or not, but I just immediately loved it. And there's so many writers here. It's a huge writing community. And so and and Anne owns this this store that is just a center for writers uh, from all over the country to come. Really? And so it's just turned out amazingly well for me. Excellent. Awesome. That's a fantastic story in its own right, right there. That's, uh, <laughs> yes. that's, a, that's, that's the plot of an ex-novel. That's, that's really cool. Uh, and, it was actually in my third novel. <laughs> <laughs> and and when, it, when it came, so so your first four books, you were still working for the ad agency before you left yes. and, and launched your fifth one. And I mean, obviously you'd worked in a lot of campaigns, marketing campaigns. And did you use that yourself or, you know, when you were launching your books and marketing your own books or was that something... You took a step back from and let publishers do that stuff for you. Well, it's, you know, these days, I think we're required to be good social media people. I don't Mm -hmm. don't know. I don't think you can be a writer and not be part of it unless you're already very famous. Mm -hmm. So I am constantly doing social media. Sometimes I find it exhausting. I'd much rather be spending my time you know, working on a new book. And um, it, I, I want to hide away in my little, my little room, this little room and, and work on my book. But um, I think you have to be out there with social media these days to get any attention, especially during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that was the big, you know, 
that was the wrench in the in in the works, you know, that I who would have ever imagined such a thing could have happened, but no, it's 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 affected, and especially as as an author, you know, we've had lots of people that, as yourself, you know, launching books, and suddenly you can't do these things anymore because it's all been affected by it. It's yeah. it, so the importance of social media, as you say, grows even more at that point. Um, so when you're setting, when you've got an idea for a book, what is your process? Do you spend a lot of time thinking about it, researching it? planning it or do you sort of just take the idea and start exploring it in terms of writing immediately i am not one of those people who outlines for books ever it's just not my style i what i try to do is understand my main characters first then i give them an insoluble problem to solve and i let them solve it because if i plot it all out i'll just be bored to death Mm -hmm. i would never want to know what's going to happen entirely I might have some sense of where it's going, but I really don't know. Now, because my books, my last two books have been set in other eras, I've had to do a lot of reading, a lot of research. And the research, you know, it it stimulates me. But I research first and I research during. Because uh, the only way I really understand where I'm going is to start writing. So I'm I'm just, I'm not a plot-oriented writer. And... um, I'm much more drawn to character development and that that's what really matters to me and excites me. And is that first draft then almost a sort of exploration of, of, of these characters, as you say, and and where the story's going, you know, does it, does it end up quite a clean draft at the end or does that first draft almost act as like, right. Okay. Here's the world here, the characters, but now I'm going to hone it down into, into the story that I want to tell. No, by the time I finish a full first draft, I've gotten definitely the bones of the plot in there as well. Um, And the first draft is the hardest part. I mean, to have the clay in order to shape it, it really does take a lot of effort. And I really love rewriting. And I have to say, it's it's shocking, but I rewrote uh, Atomic Love. 10 times. And that sounds like a very round, you know, estimate number. It's not. I literally (laughs) wrote it 10 times. And um, I'm willing to do that because I'm very picky about not having excess, not having extra words, extra scenes. I want it as crisp, as smooth, as energetic as it can be. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so that's, that's my method. I mean, I get it down. And it is a story. It is a book by the time I finish the first draft, but it's it gets much better as it goes along. Well, then how do you know when you're finished? And how, you know, how do you know when you get to draft 10 and I've got it now, it's now it's ready to go? Or is there it's always that lingering fin- doubt? It's never finished. I, <laughs> I mean, you know, and it's hard sometimes to leave my characters because I become very attached to them. Yeah. Maybe you, you agree with this in your writing. Uh, it's it's really hard to say goodbye to them when I finished a book, but uh, you know I I just feel like this is this is as good as it could be. And if I have any advice for writers, um, it's to make your book so good to you, so bulletproof to you 
that when people start sniping at it, which every book gets people who don't like it, mm-hmm. you just can't please everybody. And that's yeah. hard for new writers, I think, that you'll be proud. And it's almost like a shield. I did the best I could do. Mm-hmm. And you have to feel that way about your book when you put it out in the world, because putting a book out in the world is a very scary proposition. Yeah, yeah I'm sure. Um, and when you're when you're doing it, you say you did 10 rewrites of it. Is that complete rewrites or is it, you know, revising? Is it- it's significant enough rewrites because right. I'm constantly revising. I, I mean, every single day I'm revising, okay. but... Uh, Significant changes in uh, something about the character, something about a specific character or a scene or a situation that I realize isn't working. Um, I'm I'm very careful about what I think works and doesn't work. And I I have a certain um, level to which I need my writing to be at. So it's not about just the words. It's not just about cleaning it up. It's bigger than that. Because that can sometimes be quite a difficult um, thing to do. It, once you've written a whole draft of a novel, you know, however long it is, 90,000 words or whatever, in in your head, you've you've created this world, you've created these characters. To then revisit it and actually make quite significant changes to it can be quite um, difficult. Not from the point of view of even, oh, I don't want to change that. It's more just switching it in your head and saying right no actually what happens if this happens instead or this happens certainly I've found that it can be I find it difficult to see a different angle on things sometimes how, how do you deal with that sort of thing I really like it okay. I mean I, I really you know you, go back <laughs> to the you can always go back to the original you should always make a new clean draft when you're going to make a major change mm-hmm. so that you can say well that didn't work because sometimes <laughs> You have to go down a path that's going to lead to nowhere. Um, but I find it very exciting because if you have enough raw material that you care about, um, you want it to be good. And if you can make it better, I mean, how thrilling is that? Mm-hmm. So you've got to be brave. you yeah. got to kind of put that stick between your teeth and say, I'm going to get through this. <laughs> and um I find it very exciting. I love that part. The hardest part for me is getting down the original draft and understanding what it is I'm trying to say. Themes for me come out of my subconscious often. I don't even know that I'm laying down themes. And then by rereading it, I understand where I'm going, what's important to me in it. So, I mean, a lot of the themes I think that run through, through your work is kind of, people finding their place in the world or being dealt kind of, you know, kind of personal blows and overcoming obstacles. And your your latest book is, is is Atomic Love, which is very much in that same mold. And it, it's about female... Well, actually, I was going to say what it's about, but perhaps I'll let you tell us what your latest book is about. Well, my latest book is about a woman who was a, a nuclear physicist on the Manhattan Project, which was the original project which created the nuclear bomb. And uh, she's the only woman uh, working at the University of Chicago where they created the first nuclear reaction and the youngest woman on the team. And there was, in fact, a woman who was the youngest person on the team and the only woman. Um, My book, my character is not based on her because I really cared not to be 
telling a tale of someone else's life. Mm -hmm. I did that in my last book and I didn't want to be tied to that. Yeah. Uh, but, but everything else about her, her age and her abilities and things like that, I did borrow from real life. And so this woman now, um, this woman at the time, she helped to create the nuclear bomb and then was devastated when it was dropped, which a lot of scientists were. A lot of scientists never believed it would be used. Mm -hmm. They thought they were uh, doing it because the Germans were creating a nuclear bomb and they didn't want to be killed by the Germans just because they had a better weapon than we did. So they thought it was a way to stop a worsening war. Um, and then when it was dropped, they just, even, even Robert Oppenheimer, who mm -hmm. was one of the fathers of the nuclear weapon was devastated for the rest of his life, literally depressed about what had happened. So this woman's feeling this. And then she, not only that, but she loses her, her relationship with her lover, who is her colleague um, on the, on the weapon. Five years later, she's lost her job. He, he betrayed her and got her fired um, she's working selling jewelry in a department store and, you know, she's lost her, her career. She's lost her lover, um, you know, and her, and her identity basically. And uh, she is approached again by the man who betrayed her wanting to explain what happened and she doesn't want to see him. And then she's approached by the FBI who says, please see him because we think he's selling nuclear secrets to the Russians and you're the one person who can find out what's going on. And so she's put in the situation where it's a pretty insoluble problem. As I said, I like to give my characters insoluble <laughs> problems um, to spy on her old lover, to uh, go back into a relationship that is dangerous to her because she is vulnerable to this man and to find out what's going on. So it's a terrific setup. It is. And I'm just wondering where, what was the first spark of that idea because obviously there's a lot going on there what, what was the first thing that, that that drew you to that book uh, a lot of elements came into play for me wanting to write this book one was that my mother was a scientist in the 1940s and she was really an important scientist i never knew this as a child i knew she'd been a scientist mm -hmm. but i never knew until recently how important her work was she was doing cancer research which apparently was referred to as late as the late 1960s, even though she did in the 1940s. Wow. And, and when she married, she was pretty much required to give up her job. And it was something she regretted the rest of her life. And I, you know, she would say to me constantly, whatever you do, don't give up your career. Always know what you can do because she really lost what mattered mm -hmm. to her. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to write about that. Also, her cousin worked on the Manhattan Project. Oh, wow. um, cool. And, you know, we don't know what she did because she was so sworn to secrecy that my mother didn't even know she worked on the Manhattan Project. At the time. <laughs> and, and she went to her grave with, with details. She just didn't want to talk about it at all. Mm -hmm. So that really intrigued me. The fact that silence, that silence was so enforced, it went to mm -hmm. her grave with her. Mm -hmm. So that really drew me into the story. And the third thing was, you know, just the idea that the, that era is fascinating to me. You know, everybody talks about World War II. But if you think about the 1950s, 
The war was over. Everybody was supposed to be happy. You always see the guy in the gray flannel suit and the woman carrying a tray of, you know, martinis and saying, here, dear, you deserve this. And the kids were playing quietly in the background. And, you know, the 2.5 kids and, you know, everybody's supposed to be so happy the war is over. But in fact, if you really examine it, a lot of men came home with terrible PTSD. Mm-hmm. A lot of the women had to give up jobs that actually meant something to them during the war. They were important to the war effort. They understood their identities changed because they had jobs they could never have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. And then they were told, okay, you can have dinner parties now and have <laughs> children. <laughs> and they were, there was a lot of anger and upset and loneliness and sadness and 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 with all plastered over with big smiles. And I thought that that was a very important tale to tell because people aren't talking about that. So that era really fascinated me. And one more thing came into it, I have to say. I really wanted to write about two birds with broken wings who find each other and help each other heal. And that was a story that seemed important to me. I mean... Everybody thinks love is like, oh, it just makes you happy. To be in love makes you happy. But in fact, I really think love is about healing the the wounds from earlier. And that if you find the right person, they help you heal. And I wanted to tell that tale as well. When you when you're writing something like that, that's you know, you've got all the the kind of kind of personal stuff that you want to put into it, and you've got all this historical stuff as well that runs alongside it. Um I'm, I'm assuming that it's the kind of thing that if you, because I've definitely read things and, and something about the time or hasn't clicked right and it takes you out of it and it kind of ruins the whole experience of, of the book. And so so getting that historical stuff is just as important as the personal stuff. And how, I mean, how much research do you do when you when you go into that sort of thing? Do you just spend quite a lot of time reading about the era, what it was like for people living, working in that time? I do read a lot about the era. One of the things that is my secret weapon is reading newspapers from that era. Oh, that's a good idea. Because, you know, it's amazing. It tells you about attitudes. It tells you what's being told to the populace. It tells you the price of bread. It tells Mm -hmm. you the clothing. All Mm -hmm. of that is just so useful. Um, I also read women's magazines from the era because that tells you about attitudes of what you're expected to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's hilarious because after the war, you know, everything is made out of bologna and ursat (laughs) foods. I mean, it's horrifying. (laughs) You know, it's like bologna rarebit. And, you know, it just, it's it's horrifying what people (laughs) ate back then. Um, everything was canned, you know, you would, you, the only vegetables you ever got were canned vegetables, you know, um, but it tells you just a lot about attitudes, a lot about, you know, how people think they should live. The newspaper tells you, I think, more about how people are actually living. Mm-hmm. So those are really, really useful. Reading novels from the era is also particularly useful because it tells you about um, you know, the concerns of the era. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to be read. And then on top of that, I needed to read about nuclear weapons and how they were created. <laughs> I needed to read about nuclear spies. There actually was a spy at the University of Chicago at the time the book takes place. And he never was caught. Oh. They could they found out he was there because they broke the Russian code. The Americans broke the Russian code 
and they kept it a secret from the Russians for decades. And in 1995, they declassified that information and it proved he was a spy. But they could not uh, put him in jail without finding uh, other clues to how he became what he became and how he did what he did. And they couldn't find them in time. And he went off to England and he spent the rest of his life as a professor in England and was never jailed. So, I mean, those things were really fascinating and very important to tell the tale. So there's a lot of reading to be done. And I have to tell you, I'm not a good nonfiction reader. I really enjoy writing, reading fiction. I don't really enjoy reading nonfiction mm-hmm. unless it's super well written mm-hmm. so it's a challenge for me i mean i definitely find that um if i'm kind of like you i, I don't really I, I struggle reading a lot of factual stuff if it's about a historical time but i feel i feel the books that i that i, I learned the most from are ones where they're written in that era but they're not you, you know you're kind of learning about that era as you go along so that it's kind of historical stuff's incidental or it's part of the plot and you don't even realise until the end I've learned all about the Cold War because of this book that wasn't, you know, we'd never read about it otherwise, but it's a nice way to get to learn. Right. Well, and, and, you know, the important part about being a writer of historical fiction is to not hit your readers over the head with the information. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, a bad historical novel will say, and here's everything I know about the atomic bomb. And they just... (laughs) drop it on you. That is not a good way. You know, the characters need to understand it. It needs to be natural. It needs to be released in a way that you would release the facts of our pandemic as Mm -hmm. example. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you incorporate them into the characters, into what they do, that, that historical information, you have to be really careful not to drop it on your readers. Yeah, absolutely. That's always a big problem. That you don't want just a sort of exposition dump in in a book. There's nothing worse to pull yeah. you out of it, really. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> it'll put you to sleep for uh, one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the the book itself has, you know, just going back to the pandemic. It, I think it's just launched uh, in September. Is that right? And yeah. uh, you know what what happened given given the situation we're in? How how did that go? Well, it's been a challenge. Um, and, you know, my publisher is very, very behind it. So mm-hmm. they're really hoping that the paperback will be the bigger story. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did get a wonderful um, event with Waterstones and we've done a lot of podcasts and we're just chugging along. Um, it's done well in the U.S. because it was chosen as a book of the month which is a, a very popular club among particularly young, re- young women readers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we sold tens of thousands of copies of the hardback that way, which was amazing. I, awesome, I, yeah. I, I never imagined such a thing. Um, and in the UK, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, but, you know, Michael Joseph has just been wonderful to me and, um, you know, they're, they really believe in the book and, um, it's also going to come out in um, eight languages, so that's exciting. Right. And I've been in touch with some of the translators asking me questions, which is always fun. I suppose whenever you launch a book, there's always more so than ever, as time goes on, that kind of reliance on online social media, blogs, podcasts. And I'd imagine now with the pandemic, more than ever, 
there's a you know it's pretty much entirely online and and it, it's, it must be forcing people to rethink how book launches work and, and not just book launches but any kind of media launch how do you get that out there without physically going to bookshops and reading it to people and you know signing copies and stuff yeah so it's really um it's a very different way of thinking about it. I mean, I've always gone on book tours. Mm-hmm. Big book tours were planned for this book. I was going to come to the UK, which of course made me very happy because my daughter lives there and I love <laughs> seeing her. Um, but, you know, I'm hoping that'll still happen for the paperback. There's no way to know exactly when it will come out. But I will tell you an interesting silver lining to this. And that is that a lot of the events that I have done online because they get, Uh, put into, you know, archives, they get looked at much more. I mean, an event I did uh, with Ann Patchett um, for Parnassus Books is her bookstore um, has gotten 1600 views. I mean, you know, it's just amazing. I would never get that many people into a bookstore. So there are, you know, there are positives to it. And, and people can, you know, watch events all over the country yeah. if they want to. So that's a positive. And it makes me wonder what's going to happen to, uh, you know, book tours in the future. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure there will always be book tours, but probably less of them, I'm thinking. Oh, well, yeah. even with like the Edinburgh International Book Festival, obviously it was cancelled, but it was all online. And, you know, I think they also had a, a massive um surge in people seeing it and stuff because right. you have that opportunity you don't you know you if you can't go to an event live then you can always catch up with it recorded and things like that so uh, yeah. as you say silver linings to to fairly dark clouds <laughs> um right, right. Uh, um and in terms of your own writing and creativity have you found you know has 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 everything that's been going on made it more difficult to write or have you been able just to bed in and and continue your own writing? Um, Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yes, it has definitely made it more difficult. I think, uh, you know, here in America, we're not just dealing with a pandemic. We're dealing with a, a political scourge and it's been very hard for people who are thinking, caring humans to go forward. Um, we're hope our election is on our minds every single day here. And I, I know it affects the whole world. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have friends in Australia writing me about it. So I know, <laughs> I know everybody's wondering what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we all are getting our hopes up, which makes me nervous because we've been knocked before mm-hmm. when our hopes are up. So um, yeah, my, I'm very distracted. I'm much more distracted than usual. And I really have to be tough on myself to get myself to write. When I do get myself to write, I'm much happier. So I have to remind myself that's important. You know, um, Ann Patchett said, and I really think this is a great quote because it, it so speaks to me. Um, we were walking our dogs one night and she said, you know, those times when you just have the muse come to you and you just can't stop writing and it's just fantastic. Yeah, of course, I know those times. And then she goes, and you know those times when you just sit down and you feel like an idiot and you can't get anything (laughs) down and you're just struggling, but you still work and you still work and you still work and, you know, you're going to rewrite it, you're going to fix it. And then you're done with the book and you can't remember which is which. (laughs) 
And that's so true because, you know, sometimes the perspiration parts instead of the inspiration parts Mm -hmm. are just as good in the end when you work on them. And so you just have to keep working. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. There's definitely times I've written stuff and as you see, every word's a slog and you think this is just absolute garbage. And the next day you go back and you look at it and you think, that's not how bad, but it's, it's, yeah, it's a lot exactly. better. I thought it was going to be. I just leave it. Exactly. <laughs> and if it is half bad, you can fix the half that is. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's half a lot better than I thought it was. Yeah. Um, so I, I know Atomic Love is just out, but but you know, have you been working on your next book? Uh, um, is that is, you know have you, have you got a deal where that will be out next year at about around the same time or? No, I I will not do two book deals. I did no. that one time and uh, it it's just not good. And I'll tell you why, because the editor you adore who picked you up is very likely to go to another house and orphan you and then you're stuck <laughs> when you're lonely and afraid. You know, I don't want to go through that again. I like to write one book at a time. And um, however long it takes for me, I don't really want that kind of pressure and uh, so my next book will come when it comes. I'm working on it now. I'm trying to understand exactly what it is. It's always very amorphous in the beginning. Mm. Yep. Excellent. It's quite an exciting time, though, I think. It's, we were chatting with someone the other day there who kind of said that you're know, the, the perfect book is when it's in your head still. And, <laughs> it's, 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 and as soon as you try and put it on the page, that's when it starts to kind of... Yeah. The reality of trying to make that actually work starts to sink in. Yeah. But it, uh, I think the planning when it's all in these kind of nebulous possibilities is always quite a nice a nice part of the process. I 100% agree with you. And, you know, it's true that, you know, people come up to, to writers and they'll say, I have such a great story. You should do it. <laughs> you could write it and it would be great. It's like it's always great in your head. it's not always so great when you get it down and you know in fact it's never great when you get it down at first yeah so uh there are parts you're going to go oh that was good but there's going to be a lot of parts that are going to be just horrifying Mm. and you know you're right it's always terrific when you're thinking it up but and then by by the time it is ready and you've you've done your drafts it's probably changed so much from what it was when you first started that it's the the idea is completely different no it's it's uh, such a changing thing yeah yeah it's ever changing it's ever changing 10 drafts in too (laughs) (laughs) exactly Um, what was the last book that you read? You know, I, I always say that I have book amnesia because <laughs> I have a really hard time uh, telling you what the last book I read was. <laughs> um, I can actually, I do know what the last book I read was, and it was, it is very popular in the U.S., and I really didn't like it oh. at all. <laughs> and oh, so no. I'm not going to name it. Okay, uh, that's fair. It is, it is historic fiction. And I just kept slapping my head because it was, just, <laughs> it was so bad. And I don't, you know, I, I, it's very confusing what is popular, what isn't mm. popular, why yeah. it's popular. And I'm not going to name names. Okay. No, that's fair fine. enough. Fair enough. No, I think I've definitely read stuff and you think, I don't understand why this is so big, but it's just not clicking for me at all. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it felt, I felt, you know, the, I felt the writer's hand 
way mm-hmm. too much. And I don't want to ever feel the writer's hand. I want to fall into the story and believe it really happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about the last film you watched? Was that any better? Ah, what was the last film I watched? Oh, you know, film, you know, do we watch film? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. I don't know that I can answer. Hang on a minute. You know, it was an old movie and I'm thinking it was a Hitchcock, but I don't really remember what it was. I, you know, I could watch Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> I really love yeah. him. Yeah, yeah. Great. We, we watched um, Cycle for the right for the. I mean, I said years and years ago, but we watched it recently for the first time in ages, and I was amazed how well it still holds up for being sixty years old or so. It's it's genuinely still a terrific movie. It's it's yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas a lot of films don't last that long, but his stuff definitely does. It's true. I'll tell you what else is a terrific movie, and it's a writer's movie. Okay. Rear Window. Yeah. Yeah, if you haven't seen film. the window, you have to see it. Or if you haven't seen it in a long time, you have to see it again because it's about people watching other people. So it is all about the peeping Tom quality of being <laughs> a writer and wanting to know what's going on behind those windows. Yep. And isn't that what we do every single day as writers? Yeah. We, we watch, we quietly watch and take notes and we try to figure out What's going on back there? What's yep. the mystery? Everyone has secrets, and don't we all want to know what those secrets are? That's so true. It's it's really it is the ultimate writer's movie, Rear Window. I could see that a thousand times. I'd never be tired of it. <laughs> yeah, it's great actually. I've I've not seen I've it for a few it. years though. But no, yeah. I um, and uh, another another one in the same theme. What is the last TV show that you watched or are watching? Um, the last TV show I watched was Shetland. Oh, okay. nice. <laughs> and I, I love, I love, uh, all British mysteries and I really love Shetland and I've been to Shetland. My daughter and I went to Shetland and spent a week there. I love going to Scottish Isles. I've also been to the Orkneys and I've been to Mull and I, you know, I just love going to the farthest reaches of places so um shetland really speaks to me i love you know i love everything about it it's it's one of these shows though that it's like there's there's so many uh, murders happening on such a small place (laughs) (laughs) i know we we always joke about the danger of small english villages yeah exactly (laughs) midsummer murders exactly why would you ever live there (laughs) and if you're if you're not murdered the person next door is going to be murdered (laughs) watching out the window and have all the clues so. <laughs> that's so true and uh, the very very last thing we do is a quick fire either or so there's uh, no there's not meant to be any correct answer but there might well be one or two but uh tv or cinema these days tv yeah um a fancy restaurant or a takeout well I really would much rather go to a fancy restaurant, but not during the pandemic. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, last one I'll go for, real book or e-book? Okay. I'm going to be very unpopular as an author for saying this, but I love e-books. I really love ebooks because you know, it's the, I don't, you know, I love looking at a book. I love seeing the beauty of books, 
But when you're reading an ebook, you fall into it and you don't even think about the physicality of the book anymore. And I have to say, I really love that. I also love when I'm done, if I think, I love this author. I have to read the eight yeah. other books this author has read. <laughs> I can have it that night. So, yeah. you know, I know I'll be very unpopular. For no, saying. listen, I am 100% behind you in this. I'm a massive ebook fan for all those reasons you say, lightweight. Travel with the easy instant books on your on your bookshelf straight away. Yep. I'm glad to find a kindred spirit who also agrees with me on this. It's very <laughs> I think we're a silent a silent minority or possibly majority. I say yeah. definitely majority. But yeah. definitely yeah. silent. It's yeah. well, in, in terms of guests on the podcast, it, it's the minority, definitely. We're creeping up though. We're, you we're, are, yeah, there have been a few recently. now, I think yeah. of forty or us up to five now Marco must be getting a bit worried over there in the ivory tower I think I think you're doing yourself down I think you must have at least six people that prefer <laughs> ebooks out of 55 it's a silent majority I believe <laughs> I don't think you know what a majority is <laughs> um, but no I, th- I thought that was a great chat with Jenny and uh, as I said at the start really interesting to hear how you craft convincing historical fiction you know mm-hmm. and because there can, there must be a danger when you're researching something like that that you are desperate to put all your research that you found into the novel in a yeah. sort of expository way that, that that ruins the whole flow of the novel and kind of takes yeah. you out of it. I yeah. thought reading the, like a newspaper or a magazine from the time mm-hmm. very interesting method. I'd never thought of doing that, but it's a a great way to capture the kind of writing style or what was going on at the time, what was popular, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. It's really, really smart. Just sort of cultural attitudes and everything. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a very clever idea. So I may steal that myself <laughs> if I decide to go down that route. Um, but thanks very much to Jenny for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate her taking the time. And uh, if you haven't checked out Atomic Love, it is available in the UK. So uh, you can get that. We'll put a link to uh, be able to buy it on the podcast description and on the website. Absolutely. And next week, of course, as Marco said at the start of the episode, there is no regularly scheduled podcast. We are doing the page one session specials, audio format and video format for the new episode, which will be out New Year's Eve. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we'll be back in two weeks time with another brand spanking new episode for you all to enjoy. We will. And uh, in the meantime, if you enjoyed the episode, please do take a couple of seconds to rate us on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you do. That would be the best Christmas present you can give us. <laughs> um, Marco's to... been begging for this all year. Exactly. What's the puppy? So just, yeah, a little five-star review there. That would be awesome. Helps us climb the charts, helps us continue to get great guests on the podcast. And if anybody wants to get in touch with a question or a comment or just to wish us a Merry Christmas, can, of course, get in touch by email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk or by Twitter, which is at right underscore gear. And we'll just sign off by saying Merry Christmas because we won't be recording an intro and outro for for next week's, for the Page One Sessions episodes. So I hope you have a great time, a safe time, of course, in in this current world. (laughs) Uh, And we'll see you in the new year. Yes, have an excellent Christmas New Year and see you all later.